0: You cannot imagine any circumstance in which you would behave the way this person is behaving. And yet you look at them and you see that they're a member of the same species as you. They're made of the same stuff as you. And there's something about that, that kind of black box phenomenon, that is compelling.
1: you're listening to Good is in the Details. I'm Gwendolyn Dolski.
2: And I'm Rudy Sallow.
1: And this is the podcast where we learn what we didn't know we didn't know in the spirit of Socrates. All with the aim of a self-improved life, a more knowledgeable life, a good life.
2: Yes, on this episode, we do talk about life. We talk about mm-hmm. the loss of life, unfortunately. We talk about justice. We talk about a possible injustice that may have occurred. And we're specifically talking to Matthew Craig Kelly who has a terrific true crime podcast called The Looking Glass Podcast. And on season one, he's specifically analyzing from a historical perspective, from many different perspectives. It's not your, you know, average everyday true crime podcast. This one has got some reenactment. It's very analytical, and it's this discussion of the tragic, tragic case of a former Green Beret surgeon by the name of Jeffrey McDonald, which happens to be one of the most litigated murder cases in the history of the United States. And if you don't know anything about it, just listen to the podcast. It's brilliant. Matthew is a is just a brilliant person. He's a big fan of the show. He's also, also in The Sound of Animals Fighting, which on our very last show, we had Ridge Balling from The Sound of Animals Fighting, and they're going out on tour. So, We're advocating for that band. We're advocating for the podcast. I loved it. 10 episodes with some mini bonus episodes after it. Gwen, what are your thoughts on on this episode that's coming up?
1: I love the true crime genre, and I really love what Matthew did. You know, on our podcast, we were talking about things, you know, we use philosophy, we use law to talk about how to live life well. And an area that we don't talk about as much is the importance of critical thinking skills. And I know when I'm teaching critical thinking, sometimes analyzing sentences to see, well, wait a minute, what is an inductive argument, a deductive argument? What is the nature of expertise? What are the different types of fallacies? Sometimes that sometimes I can feel quite dry. But really learning how to use those skills has such a broad range and can lead to a good and enjoyable life. And I think that we see that manifesting in the true crime genre with Matthew, where he's using those skills to kind of get to the heart of the matter, if this person is actually guilty of these murders or not, reassessing the evidence, looking at the experts, looking at the timeline, different ways of viewing one event, all with the incentive to get to the heart of justice, or if there was an injustice. And that is part of what it means to live life well. And I think that's one of the reasons why we are drawn to true crime in the first place, is that we have this sense of problem solving that's innate. And we have this sense of wanting justice for somebody who's guilty, or if somebody is innocent, we want that too. And I just love the way that it comes together. And Matthew is an extraordinary person, musician, CEO, history PhD, and now true crime podcaster. And it was an absolute absolute delight to have him on the show.
2: Yeah, what I really enjoy about this episode is similar to our episode on women serial killers. We do some analytical processes about what is the magnetism of the true crime genre. We really get into that discussion. And Matthew explains what attracted him to true crime and and analyzing the case. I talk about, you know, my experience with growing up with Richard Ramirez, you talk about your thoughts about true crime. So really, we do analyze and we try to do some philosophical takes on it. Magnetism of true crime. I mean, really, that's really what it comes down to, and and why this oh, genre... is that our title. Oh uh, yes, it definitely is. I was, that's what I was going <laughs> to. That's what I was. That's what I was going to pitch you on, and I, I was hoping by saying it in an eloquent way that you would glom onto it. But I like the thought of the magnetism of true crime with Matthew Craig Kelly. What do you think about that?
1: That is perfect. So let's get to it. The magnetism of true crime with Matthew Craig Kelly.
2: Matthew Craig Kelly, thank you for coming on. Good as in the details. I don't mean to be so okay. forthright, but who are you? What are you doing here? Tell us about you, and then we want to talk about true crime and specifically your podcast. But please tell us who you are.
0: Sure. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be on with you guys. Yeah, so I'm Matthew Craig Kelly. That's Craig with a K. I'm a historian and criminal investigator. I'm the CEO of a security and investigations firm called B2G Global Strategies we're essentially a boutique private investigation service. We operate all over the world. Our board of directors includes the former head of the FBI's Los Angeles field office, a number of other prominent figures, and we do security and threat assessments for major properties. We do financial and due diligence investigations for major companies and investment firms and litigation support for law firms, cyber investigations, et cetera.
1: Rudy, can I jump in real fast? I already have a question. Go right ahead. It's just that- as a philosophy major, I am mm. guessing that maybe when you were studying history, you got this question, history, wow, what are you going to do with that? Uh, yeah. So this is very cool. Did you get that at all?
0: <laughs> I, I wish I'd gotten it. Uh, my whole... Oh,
1: no, I get it as a philosophy major. Well, Even Rudy to this day is telling me that I'm useless.
0: No, no. I Well, so I was a philosophy undergrad, so I certainly got it <gasps> back then, and actually, I think my philosophy education has probably served me better long term, including in terms of employment and all the things that it's not supposed to serve you well in because it's so you know impractical, supposedly. I think it's served me better than the history stuff, you know, but- I wish somebody had gotten a hold of me at a younger age and suggested that I might want to take a more pragmatic approach to life and making money and so forth, because all of that sort of came on for me in my late 30s. So I'm fortunate to have landed on my feet, but I just was flying by the seat of my pants. You know, I was interested in philosophy, so I studied that. I was interested in history, so I studied that. I wasn't as pragmatic as I should have been.
1: And then how do those skills of philosophy and history present themselves? I I think it's obvious, but maybe you can tell for any young listeners in university who are wondering, what am I going to do with this knowledge? How do those two areas manifest in your current
0: work? So in terms of philosophy, I think you'll relate to this. Philosophy, if you have any kind of training in an analytic tradition, you learn to think and you learn to write. And those are skills that are highly adaptable in a lot of different job situations. That's philosophy. In terms of history. My trajectory, I think, is very idiosyncratic and would not necessarily be a useful guide for a person considering getting a PhD in history right now, because I essentially got lucky. I mean, I, I did focus on crime as a historian, but it was in a the context of the modern Middle East and revolutionary violence and State reactions to revolutionary violence and state violence and these kinds of things. So fairly, you know, abstract topics that are not easily transferable to the real world job market. But I did wind up working as a consultant for B2G Global Strategies, for whom I now serve as CEO and I was able to do that kind of work. I was able to do criminal analysis and write reports and dig into cases and so forth. That worked for me. But I have a very unusual background for the type of job that I have. I'm the only historian that I know who does this work. Everybody who works for me is ex-FBI, CIA, DEA, etc. cetera.
1: It's the critical thinking skills. Because I can tell when I'm listening to your podcast, just the things that, you know, as far as for me is like what is following, but I would imagine with the history background, it's just that diligence in trying to um, uncover the truth and the different possible ways in which one event could be understood in order to get a whole picture.
0: Yeah, that's that's very insightful. I mean, you, you really articulated that perfectly. Thank that, you, for me- Matthew.
1: You're my favorite guest. Oh my God, Rudy, <laughs> Rudy, you have struck gold. Philosophy. Oh hey, my take God, take it easy. Okay, you say that every right, time. You
2: take that every time.
0: Come yeah, on. No, it just that really describes my pull toward this case. Is there's a mystery that we're trying to uncover, we're trying to find the answer to a, a question, but how we answer that question involves all these different approaches, right? We have to think about human psychology, we have to think about language, we have to think about history, how we do history, how we sort evidence. And so it's kind of a heuristic, you know, it's a way of relating how a historian approaches a case which I thought was one of the useful things I could do by doing this podcast is sort of show people how to think critically, how to consider multiple perspectives without approaching them in a way that is dismissive, which is very typical of modern political discourse, right? That people don't really understand one another's perspectives. They can't articulate a perspective that they don't hold. And so I just thought through this case, we could show how that Although that is difficult to do, which is why people tend not to do it, it's also intellectually thrilling to do, and it's engaging, and it's nourishing, and we could think about more topics in that spirit. Really trying to understand how an intelligent person might not hold your view, it would be useful, you know, for all of us.
2: Yeah, and speaking of that, you keep referring to the case. You're talking about your podcast, The Looking Class, I do want to talk about you as an individual a little bit more later, but since we're already talking about the case, do you want to give us a, I really want to know, okay, so the podcast is great, the Looking Glass podcast, and I love the historical context of it. I especially loved uh, episode number two when you're talking about the Manson murders, the 1960s, and you know how Bugliosi tried to kind of wrap it up in a nice little, neat little box. I'd love to hear you talk more about that. But here, I got to ask you the question, Matthew, why this case? What is it? Give us a little bit of the history of you connected to this case. What brought you to it?
0: I think you and I were texting a while back about cases that invade your childhood, right? I mean, really when you're seven, eight, nine years old, you shouldn't be thinking about murderers and things like this, but you can't they get in, they creep into Eden, into your childhood just through news reporting and so forth. So you had the situation with Richard Ramirez, the night stalker, which I also remember him being on the loose. You don't forget that kind of thing as a kid. And this case invaded my childhood in a similar, actually a rather different way, which was through entertainment media. The famous book about this case was written by the journalist Joe McGinnis, who died a few years ago, but a very famous journalist, wrote about a lot of different murder cases and other things. I think his last book was about Sarah Palin. And Joe McGinnis published a book in 1983 called Fatal Vision. And that is what made this case, a sort of national and international sensation. And then the following year, NBC did a miniseries based on Fatal Vision, also titled Fatal Vision. So this is you know, 1984. There's three major channels. Half the country is sitting in front of a television watching the same programming every night. So I don't know. I think it was 20 million, maybe more people watched Fatal Vision miniseries. So that's how it crept into my awareness. I became aware of it because I, I saw advertisements for it. My parents wouldn't let me see something like that, but I saw advertisements. And particularly, I saw this iconic image of Jeffrey McDonald or you know, a man representing Jeffrey McDonald standing in the doorway of a child's bedroom. You see his silhouette and it's kind of cast across the room over the bed of the child. Obviously, I had no context for that, but was, I knew that image was ominous and it bothered me. So I asked my mother what that was. And then she proceeded to tell me what at that point, everybody thought they knew about this case, which was, this is a story about Jeffrey McDonald, who was Mr. Perfect, Princeton-educated, Green Beret, handsome, beautiful family. And one night he killed his own family, and then he tried to stage the scene to make it look like Charles Manson or a Manson-like group of hippies had done it. And uh, that's the story that everybody heard. That you know was impressed upon me as a child. I never forgot the case. And then thirty plus years later, 2012, whatever I, I was that thirty? In any case, decades later, 2012, Errol Morris wrote this book called A Wilderness of Error, in which he claimed that actually McDonald was telling the truth. There really were a gang of Manson-like hippies who broke into his house and killed his family. My initial reaction to that is what really propelled me down the rabbit hole, because my initial reaction, just reflexive, was Errol Morris. Has lost his mind. Why would he believe something like this? And then, of course, I thought, well, how do I know that Jeffrey McDonald committed that? I, I know nothing about this. The only information I have about this is what my mother told me when I was nine years old. And so I thought, could it be, you know, that th- could this guy actually have been telling the truth this whole time? Then I couldn't put it down. So then I, I went back into the case and I realized to sort of put a cap on this that no historian had done that. Everybody who had written about the case was essentially a journalist or a kind of amateur sleuth. And so nobody had brought historical methodologies. bear on the evidence, which this case is now half a century old, it's a historical matter at this point. And so I thought, I'm going to do that
2: write another book, but then you were like, wait a minute, there's this whole other medium that can go out there with a podcast. Like why a podcast?
0: What really happened was that I was on my lunch breaks reading through police reports from 1970, from the period of the crime. And it occurred to me how weird this behavior was. And I thought, I can't just be reading these police reports on my lunch break like a lunatic. So I, I'm going to just, I, I'm writing a book. That's what I told myself. I'm going to write a book about this case. Uh, and so that's what I started to do. I started to write a book. And then I, I don't remember who it was, but someone, somewhere, along the way said, you know, you should make it a podcast. You could use actors, you could use music. Once that idea got into my head, I I thought, ah, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. I had no idea the amount of work that was going to involve. This was years ago that this started. Essentially, I thought it would be more interesting and satisfying from an aesthetic perspective to work with actors and things like that. But I also thought I could make some money, you know, because I I published a book in 2017 that was a a history book with the University of California Press, which was about revolutionary violence in Palestine. Of course, that book took a great deal of work to write. And of course, it made no money because it's an academic book. And I thought I can't put my wife through the experience of having me spend all this time on something that's not going to make any money. When I had the book idea, I thought this book might sell because it's a well known case. But then the podcast idea I thought would be maybe even easier to monetize. Little did I know. <laughs> maybe, maybe it will be monetizable at some point for me.
2: Right. I mean, you could make the podcast into a book. I mean, there's, I mean, there's nothing stopping you from actually yeah. publishing that book after going through this experience, I imagine, correct?
0: That's true, and, and it, it literally could be published as is, as a book, just as a text, because that is essentially what it is. It's a 10-chapter book, and I'm just bringing in actors whenever I'm citing stuff, right, and using music. So it's, it's more like an audio book or a old-time radio drama than a typical podcast, as, as you know. Yeah, that's a possibility as well.
2: I don't charge a lot of money for monetization ideas.
0: Oh, you don't? Okay, good.
2: <laughs> no, yeah. Uh, you know, I'm a lawyer. I'm a lawyer on the side. No. Uh...
1: Rudy, of course, jumps in with the money. Like... <laughs> Rudy's always got <laughs> these these free tips for the Listen, to me, listen
2: I'm going to tell think you something. More like Rudy, it's very <laughs> let me tell you something very simple since you since you guys talked about this early on, okay? When I told my parents I wanted to go to college, they literally said, "What are you going to do with the rest of your life? I'm not spending a penny on you unless you're going to make money. Otherwise, you're not allowed to leave our house unless you are going to be a lawyer."
1: quick break to tell you about our friends at Newsly. Newsly is an all-in-one audio super app for iOS and Android. It picks up on the top trending articles on the web on topics you choose at any given moment and reads them to you in a natural human voice. The entire web becomes listenable for the first time, all in one place. Browse articles from topics you choose and start playing. Stop scrolling and start listening. You can follow any topic like music, education, philosophy, transportation. And they have podcasts as well. You can listen to Good is in the Details. Download and use Newsly for free now from www.newsly.me or from the link that we'll have in the show notes. Use offer code the details, And I'll also put that in the show notes. And now back to the show.
2: So, we were just talking about how I'm a financial genius (laughs) thanks to my parents. (laughs) But, 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 listen, and that sounds terrible. Now, me sounding terrible is a wonderful segue, Matthew, because that's, I put myself out there if you haven't figured that out yet. I am vulnerable on this show. I want to talk about something and I can't stop thinking about it, Matthew. Likeability. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. When I'm listening to, through the looking glass, and I'm thinking about the case this case that you investigate. I'm thinking that this person may or may not be guilty of killing his family, but he's definitely guilty of mm-hmm. being unlikable. What are your thoughts on that, and, and how important really should that be here or in any case? Or yeah. I, I just, I'm just curious what you think likability has been playing a role in this case since the beginning of time.
0: So There's the sort of ethical question of what role likability should play in adjudicating guilt or innocence. And there, it shouldn't play any role, but on earth, in real life, if you're selecting jurors... Out of the general population, and you take twelve people out of the general population and have them sit through a trial, and the defendant is highly unlikable it 's going to play a role you know and it could play a, a role that is totally detrimental to the defendant 's future, even if the defendant is innocent so it 's a fact you have to be mindful of this, and of course, lawyers are well aware of this I mean remember the uh, who were the boys, the Mendez brothers, right, who killed their parents, they would put them in the sweaters and give them those kind of boyish haircuts and so forth, so that they would come off a certain way to the jury, be more sympathetic and so forth. So that's just a part of how the game is played. In the context of the McDonald case, though, it's another point that when you look at it, it's another one of these features of the case that is one of the things that pulls me into it. Because depending on how you understand the case, McDonald's Supposed likability or lack of likability looks different. So if you assume that McDonald is guilty, problem McDonald had at trial because in, in, in his ordinary life, McDonald was very likable. And actually, I know people who knew McDonald. Uh, very, very charming, very ingratious. People love this guy. The people who knew him, very few people who knew him ever believed that he could have done this. But at trial, he kept losing his temper. So you have three different legal proceedings, right? The army proceedings, and then the grand jury of the mid-1970s, and then the actual trial of 1979. During the grand jury in the mid-1970s and the trial of 1979, he kept losing his composure on the stand. he get very angry. And so people said, well, there you go. See, he looks just like a guilty person. See how he keeps losing his temper? That's probably what he did on the night of the murders, probably lost his temper and killed his family. On the other hand, if you listen to someone like Vincent Bugliosi, who you mentioned earlier, who's, you know, the late great American prosecutor, Bugliosi, one of the things he always says in his books is that when innocent people are charged with heinous crimes, like murdering their own wife and children, they flip out. That's how an innocent person reacts when they're falsely accused. So McDonald is in a no-win situation in that case, right? If he if he acts out, there he goes. He has a temper problem. If he doesn't act out, if, if these charges are put before a court, you killed your family, you murdered your daughters, so forth, and he just takes it all in stride, well, now he looks like a cold-blooded psychopath. So I don't think he could win on, on that score. That's terrible. I mean,
2: I know, man, if I was in that situation... I'd be like McDonald. I'd be, you know, yep. look. I, I'm. I'll be honest. I would have my own temper or anger issues. When when, I, when anything happens to my family or yep. or if my kid anything could possibly go wrong, there. Yeah, it is a no win situation. I mean, that is that's just horrible when you bring that up. Yeah. yeah, and maybe you know what, Matthew? Maybe you're right. Maybe I'm. Maybe I was a little biased about the whole likability thing. I guess there was an episode. I think it was an episode five where. Mm mcdonald was reading from the letter to the grand jury and he was talking about yeah. how he started his life over and he went to california yeah. and he's like yeah okay yeah i slept with a lot of women i've slept with 30 women i don't care yeah. it doesn't mean anything yeah. It, yeah. There, there was something uh, i don't know very yeah it rubbed me the wrong way do you no, know what i'm saying like and his lawyers I, yeah. and you know what i'm thinking matthew yeah i know his I, I know he even said yeah my lawyers wanted me to strike some stuff out and i struck some yeah. stuff out i'm like Your lawyers should have told you not to talk about all these women that you've slept with or all this other type of stuff. I I don't... I want your thoughts. Did he sink himself? Let's assume he's innocent, but like, yeah. name a number, a couple of things that he did wrong in his case, if, if you don't mind.
0: Well, this gets to the point about history. So, first of all, when I listen to that testimony, I take it the same way you do. He, it, he obviously seems like a jerk the way he's talking. There's that one particular, and it's I think it's to the government prosecutors. Victor Warhide, he was the prosecutor at the grand jury. It's to his credit. I think he was a very socially intelligent man. He knew just Just how to talk to mcdonald to rile him up right and so he kept bringing up the women issue and mcdonald kept flipping out about it because mcdonald's point which is a fair point is you cannot imply that i murdered my children because i was unfaithful to my wife that is not a reasonable inference right you've got to have more than that and they didn't have much more than that so but war kept circling back to it and then at some point mcdonald explodes and what does he say he says uh they bring up a secretary that he claims not to remember and then finally he says well do you remember her now and he says yeah I bawled the girl. <laughs> that's right. I bawled that's exactly, yeah. He said, right? that's and you're exactly just like, oh, this guy, oh, this man. guy is just his own worst enemy, you know. Um, he played into the hands
2: of the prosecutor. So yeah. what you're saying is it's, it's a yeah. good point. The damn good prosecutor is what you're saying, I think, right?
0: Yes. What I was also going to say is that this is 1975, January of 1975. And we're listening to it in 2023. I mean, now it sounds, you can't imagine somebody talking that way in a court, but this is a long time ago. And so a guy talking that way, it did not strike people. I think it was still off-putting. It still made him look bad. But again, as a historian, you cannot impose the current moment on the past if you're really trying to understand what happened, right, including what happened socially in that courtroom. It didn't make him look good, but it didn't make him look as bad as it would make him look now. I mean, this is for obvious reasons in terms of the advances and the feminist movement and so forth. This is is a long, long long time ago, another world. Then again, I think to go to McDonald's psychology, let's assume he's innocent. So if he's innocent and he says, I am not going to hide from this court the fact that I am a philanderer, that I cheated on my wife, that I've slept with a lot of women. This is sort of the way I've lived my life. I'm not going to hide any of that. Because I'm not going to hide anything because I don't have anything to hide. I didn't kill my family. So if you want to sit here and talk about women all day, we can do that. But I'm just going to keep pointing out that doesn't mean I killed my family. I mean, again, 1974, lots of 74, 75, lots of men are behaving like McDonald was behaving. Almost none of them killed their children. Right. So that's just this bridge to another world, the prosecution it's incumbent upon them to build. And I, I think the case I try to make in The Looking Glass is that certainly in the mid-1970s and at the 1979 trial, they did not build that bridge. So they just kept at it with the character stuff. Look at what a jerk this guy is. Look how he sleeps around. Look how he loses his temper. And, you know, that might have been smart, whatever you want to call it, court craft. But, you know, if we're being serious, we have to actually look at the evidence.
1: For our listeners, you do an explanation, you go back to Helter Skelter. Can you maybe tell our listeners uh, how important it is to have an understanding of Helter Skelter in order to understand this case. I'm also wondering, as you were going through it, I I remember when I read that there was a part of it I didn't understand. I thought it was just chaotic. It was random. And it surprised me to find out that those murders were not actually random, that there was, I mean, a screwed up logic, but there was some sort of reasoning behind it. When you're going through that, I guess this is a two-part question. When you're going through that, is there something that you find that surprises people when they learn about the Manson murders? And then also would the case be different had Manson not, had that not happened? How would that have changed the trajectory of the case?
0: I think pretty much everybody who's discussed the McDonald murders, this isn't unique to me at all. They have to bring in the context of the Manson murders because the Manson murders occurred six months earlier and the crime scene at the McDonald's looked like the Mansons had been there. Somebody wrote pig on the bed. Headboard in blood, there was blood all over the place, and so forth. So, and you have McDonald's account of having these people looming over him and a woman with a big hat and long hair holding maybe a candle, chanting, Acid is groovy, kill the pigs. All of this makes sense if you understand something about the 60s and more specifically about the Manson murders that happened just a few months earlier. The point I think is maybe more unique to the looking glass that I try to drive home is that the reason why most people or many of the people who hear Jeffrey McDonald's story, the reason why they dismiss it out of hand is because they think, Oh no, no, there's no way something like the Manson murders is going to happen twice twice. In six months, 3,000 miles apart. The Manson murders are obviously a total anomaly, right? This is not the kind of thing that just happens like that. And so, what we have to do historically is ask what's the basis for that judgment? How do we know that the Manson murders were so anomalous? How much of this kind of thing was a part of the American counterculture in the 1960s? And so, I kind of zoom in on the counterculture and on the Manson murders specifically so we can get a more kind of granular understanding of what things looked like in 1969 and 70. And obviously I conclude, hmm, you know, Manson was not as much of an outlier as people tend to think he was, you know, he was, I mentioned, right. He was celebrated by the the weather underground very openly. They thought Charles Manson was great. There was a, a magazine, it was like a radical magazine. I believe it was published in Los Angeles. And the headline of one of the magazines was the weathermen dig Charles Manson. They liked it they thought it was cool that the Manson family was shoving forks and people and killing pigs and stuff like this. And that's a part of the history that is sort of not, I mean, there's, there's a pretty good documentary on the Weather Underground. I can't remember what it was called. You might've seen it at some point, but I don't remember them mentioning the Mansons, <laughs> you know, like this is a part of the history that's kind of died away. So that's the point about the Manson murders. And, and when I was a kid, I didn't mention this before. And I asked my mother about the McDonald thing. I had that context because that set of murders had also invaded my childhood a year earlier. I, somebody left me in front of a TV and the TV movie Helter Skelter was on. So I was eight and I watched that. So that, can we swear on this podcast? It screwed me up. Oh yeah. Uh, I want to use stronger language, but it screwed me up watching, you know, that horrifying little miniseries or TV movie at eight years old. But then I had the context. The other point you mentioned was the peculiarities of the Manson murders. The fact that there was a kind of kooky logic behind those murders. And yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the things that people find really fascinating when they look at those murders, that it was not totally chaotic and that there were these really intriguing hookups with Mm -hmm. biblical passages and the Beatles and so forth. Um, Yeah, it's really wild, you know, and even some of those passages, you kind of see the genius, you know, the uh, evil genius of Charles Manson, the way he was spinning those biblical passages about, locusts right the references to the locusts in the book of revelation the locusts are beetles and why do they have breastplates of iron because that's referring to the beetles and their electric guitars and i mean it's like you know he would have made a good uh Biblical exegete, a kooky one But, you know, he could have he could have gone another way And become like a, a Prophecy guy, you know, who writes those biblical prophecy Books or something, so it's fascinating
1: I think also the way that he controlled Everybody by having them on drugs And sorry, Rudy, plug your ears for this one But having them all have sex with each other So that Rudy doesn't like to talk About SCX I'm so, <laughs> not, I, allo- I not it was- allowed to,
2: my parents won't Be <laughs> allowed, I still, still cover my own eyes uh, if I, During <laughs> sex scenes It's true, it's not a joke <laughs>
0: So,
1: um, but I thought it was fascinating that the reason everybody had to have sex with everybody, even same sex type of stuff, was so that nobody could be attached to one other person and that that was a way to have complete control.
0: Yeah, he made a study of this. Before he got out of jail in 67 and started this cult, he did a lot of work on mind control and how to control groups of people. So he, he had thought a lot about this and he approached it in a very intelligent way cold but certainly intelligent he knew what he was doing
2: i gotta know i mean i know the now i know the reason why this case got you obsessed matthew and yeah. now and in hearing that you watched helter skelter as a young child also there you know you listened to our episode about you know richard ramirez and the and the effect on me yep and how i personally dealt with that was yep. i actually got into the horror genre very yep. early on started writing stories and it was my way of dealing with ptsd Correct. You were putting out a true crime podcast. You are a historian. I gotta know. Why do you think true crime because I now I understand now that I understand the context of why you made this podcast, this is not because true crime is hot. You're a historian, this is a case, and you were writing a book, et cetera, et cetera. However, it is a fact that true crime is one of the hottest genres the, today. Why do mm. you think so? You know, on our podcast, Gwen came up with some pretty great ideas about one of the reasons why you know maybe women listen to it is is for preparation or, or and it's particularly popular with women but i'm i'm curious like have you thought about the psychology of this obsession of it and and the philosophy of it if there is one
0: yes i have thought about that both in reflecting on why i find certain crimes sort of compelling and then obviously why it's such a big genre in general it's particularly among podcast producers but also obviously in you know film and documentaries and books i think that There is a baseline interest that has to do with just lurid fascination. People are drawn to the gory spectacle, you know, same reason why people turn and look when they see a traffic accident on the other side of the road. I don't want to put myself totally beyond that as a human being. I'm sure there's part of me that is drawn on some level to that just as a human. But I don't think that for me, that's not the sort of driving force. I think for me, I'm not super interested in true crime in general. And in fact, the reason why we went with the true crime branding for this podcast was because we kind of had to pick, you know, when you put it out there, you have to kind of pick a genre. But really, as you know, from listening to it, it's as much history as it is true crime in ways, as much psychology as it is true crime. But the thing about certain murder cases that have compelled me, I think the deal is that in our ordinary interaction with one another as human beings, we are constantly appealing to a certain technique in order to understand one another. And that technique basically is if you and I have a conversation and you glance at me a certain way at a certain moment, or there's a certain tone that creeps into your speech, and I'm not sure what to make of it. I don't know, are you annoyed with me? Do you not like me? You know, Things like this. My way of dealing with that is to try to run a simulation of what it is like to be you you know, why would Gwen look at me that way? Why why did Rudy get that tone in his voice when we were talking just now? And so I indulge in the illusion that I can run a simulation of what it is like to be you, step into your shoes. But of course I can't really do that. The only hardware I've got is my own, right? So I have to appeal to my own background experience to answer that question and to say, Well, maybe I misunderstood. Any of a number of things could have happened and usually when you do that, you realize that there's something more innocuous going on than what might appear to be. This is if you're not highly neurotic, which obviously plenty of people are, and they're obsessing over these kinds of things. But that sort of heuristic works for us most of the time. When you're studying certain kinds of crimes, I think this is the appeal of studying certain serial killers, most of which I don't want to know anything about, because I don't want to know about the lurid details. But certain ones, like the Golden State Killer, for example, that one compelled me. You're trying to understand how a person would have done such a thing, right? And you can't. You can't run the simulation that, like, It shorts out, right? You cannot imagine any circumstance in which you would behave the way this person is behaving. And yet you look at them and you see that they're a member of the same species as you. They're made of the same stuff as you. And there's something about that that kind of black box phenomenon that is compelling. And that's why on a lot of these true crime podcasts and documentaries and so forth, it's obviously common for them to bring in FBI experts who are psychological profilers and so forth, because you want the FBI expert to explain to you how this person actually thinks and why they do what they do. So I think that's it. And I'll just say on that point, that was one of the things that was quite interesting about the Golden State Killer case. The FBI put out new information in 2018. There was a big push to get this guy. He'd been out there for, I mean, they didn't even know if he was alive or dead, but they thought he was probably alive. And this is like 35 years after the last murder he had committed. And the FBI profile said, this guy is elderly. He's still living in Sacramento. He lives in the suburbs. He's a neat freak. He'll mow his lawn every other day and right his house and his space will be very clean. And they were right. When they caught him, he was out there, Trimming the rocks on his, you know, the grass around the rocks on his lawn. He was 72 years old and he was living in Citrus Heights, a suburb of Sacramento. So we do have some traction in getting a hold of these people psychologically, but that's the, I think, the thing that is really intriguing is. How could a person do this? Or in other cases, like the McDonald case, did this person really do it? It's overdetermined, right? There's a lot of facts factors that I think drive people toward true crime.
1: I wonder if it's also just part of being duped, because even from when we're young, being told, like, don't talk to strangers, we get this image in our head of what a stranger or what danger would look like. And that's never oh, yes. the case with the, yes. the whole reason why it's like we're surprised because they look just like us or they look normal yep. or they behave right. in the same way. It's not somebody who is, it's not something that you can see right away. And I right. think it's that illusion or being duped that has us even more fascinated. Like even just the story of Ted Bundy, um, The what was the book that was penned by... I think it was like the stranger beside me or something along those lines that a woman that he worked with and who was aspiring to be a true crime writer was actually friends with the serial killer. And that's also just incredible that they were side by side and it took her a while to put it together that all the evidence was pointing toward him, even as she knew it. And I think that's partly what fascinates us is that the person who is dangerous does not look diseased or bizarre or anything like that. Yeah, that's
0: exactly right. And I think one filmmaker who really captures this point of fascination is David Lynch. When you watch Twin Peaks, for example, what Lynch is showing is that we have a kind of mythical iconography of good and evil. So when acts of incredible malice and evil occur, we relay that in our myths in terms of monsters and demons and devils and so forth. And we do that for a reason, because it's warranted. We should have a special category in mind for that kind of evil. But in the world in which we actually live, those dragons and monsters they take on human form. And so they look just like us and they live in our neighborhoods. And therefore, that's how they threaten us. They're able to move among us and prey on our vulnerabilities because we can't see them coming the way you would a dragon you know, coming over the hills. The duality in Lynch's universe, like in Twin Peaks, where he'll cut to another realm where there's a guy named Bob and he looks like the most terrifying thing you've ever seen in your life. But that's not what the people in the world of Twin Peaks see. What they see is Leland Palmer. They see upstanding, uh, accomplished lawyer who's a, a member of the community. It's kind of like the BTK thing, right? The guy was that the deacon at his church. And that's what we're seeing. And that also is a point of fascination because you're, you're on the brink of another realm, but it's imminent. It's not right. The way we map it mythologically is it's somewhere else. But the way we experience is it's. It could be the person who lives next door to you. It could be the person who you're sleeping next to, you know?
1: I think, and I have to credit the the writer Jan Burke with this. I had, she um, writes in the mystery genre and I had a chance to hear one of her lectures. I think I may have mentioned this on the podcast before, but she had talked about the mystery genre when she is asked, like, does this really count as literature? And mm. her response is that at the heart of all of these types of stories and this is in fiction, but I think it applies to true crime, is that this sense of justice, that murder is the only crime in which the victim cannot advocate for themselves and it's up to the rest of us. And Mm. I have thought about that because I know Rudy was interested in, wait a minute, you know what is part of the driving force of this genre? And I think it is a sense of goodness that we do Feel compelled to right a wrong, especially if somebody appears to be innocent, and so we're just Mm. really fascinated with participating in correcting this grave injustice that that's yeah. the underscoring desire behind it. It's it's also the fascination of how it all came about. It's the rational part of us that wants to put the puzzle back together that we're also just inherently yes. problem solvers. But I think yes. that that, and again, I have to credit Jan Burke with this, but I think mm-hmm. that drive for a sense of justice and rightness is also what makes us fascinated yeah. with true crime.
0: No doubt about it. Yeah, when something really... Outrageous happens, especially if children are involved, uh, and that—that that for me was the Golden State Killer case, which possibly will be a future season of The Looking Glass. Once I learned about those crimes, and then learned this person has still not been caught, you know, you're—you have this sense of we have to catch this guy, you know, like this person must be caught. And particularly now, I think that instinct is amplified because of social media and online sleuthing and so forth, which is sort of unwieldy and all over the map. And there's all kinds of crazy people who probably shouldn't be discussing various crimes who have no ability to analyze evidence or anything talking but there have been lots of people michelle mcnamara who's the Mm -hmm. one who kind of made the golden state killer case famous who are amateur sleuths but they're very smart and they they do know how to look at evidence and so you can kind of crowdsource justice and try to figure out what happened in these cases and in the mcdonald case it's layered on top of that concern oh these children were killed something must be done about it did we get the right person is this a double atrocity which is what errol morris was arguing, at least up until very recently, he sort of stepped back a little bit. But certainly in his 2012 book, he was saying there's really two atrocities here. There's the fact of what happened to this family. And then on top of that, the father whose family was wiped out by these drug-addled lunatics, he's sitting in prison for their murder, um, which is another atrocity, you know. And so then you think, is that true? And we, we yeah, got to figure this out. That's
2: uh, kind of brings up something. I can't remember who this quote was, but you probably know it, Matthew, but it's like, The way the United States justice system is, you know, um, it's better for 99 guilty persons to go free Mm. than have one innocent person Mm. go to jail. Right now, we know for a fact that there are tons of innocent people in jail. There's there's many projects that work. At law schools, it's called the Innocence Projects, right, where they use DNA Mm -hmm. to get people off the hook and cities get sued all the time for, you know, putting the wrong person in jail. I mean, it's truly an atrocity and bringing it back to the McDonald case. And if you look at the history of what he has done since he's been convicted, since he's been convicted, if you look at the post-conviction here, he is not giving up. He's not. He's he's mm. still fighting through the, the mm. crazy morass, Byzantine mm. legal system. You know, once you're once you're kind of in, mm. right, and then you got to go through habeas corpus and all these different things to try to prove your innocence or exculpatory evidence. It's absolute mm. insanity to think that over forty mm. years later, this man is not giving up. Like. And I wanted to ask the question, like, yeah, the guy's not giving up. He's making sure no stone don't unturned. What should we deduce from that? Right. I mean, what's the deduction from that? I mean, yeah. I'm sure there's still plenty of guilty people that still want to game the system and, and, and get out. You know, there was mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I don't want to say that, but I don't know what do you interpret anything from all of his
0: attempts? You can't interpret it without bringing together the full range of evidence. And then trying to come to some determination about how likely you think it is that he's guilty or innocent, because as with the temperamental issue, how he behaved in court, his affect, his losing his composure and so forth. If you assume that he's guilty, then his continuing to insist that he's innocent is just a sign of how committed to the con this guy really is. He's clearly just calculating that he's got nothing better to do, no better course of action available to him than to just insist that he's innocent. If you think he's innocent, obviously, his advocates very, this is one of the things they always point to. They say, look, this guy has been proclaiming his innocence for half a century. He's never wavered. He's always told the same story. And they want that to count as evidence of his being innocent. There was a People Magazine Investigates documentary on the McDonald murders. There's always more documentaries coming out about this case. I think it was in two thousand seventeen maybe, where they clearly were angling from you know the perspective that he is innocent. And this is a point that they underscored. He's told the same story, he's never wavered, right? So but you can't tell. You can't tell. You can't tell by looking at him. You can't tell by his overt behavior we have to look at that evidence, you know. The good news is that in this case, there is a fair amount of evidence. There's a fair amount of physical evidence and there's a fair amount of circumstantial evidence that can be looked at. And if it is ordered, in my opinion, in a way that is historically responsible, I think you can get a picture. And that's what we conclude in episode 10. I I should drop in here if you guys don't mind, because this is a big platform and I kind of need to give the podcast its due. Episode 10 is coming out on... Tomorrow, on the 21st of uh, February. March. Or, 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 or March. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Good, good thing I've got you guys here. But there's another bonus episode, a little mini episode that drops right on the back of that. And in that episode, we relay. It's only like maybe 10 minutes long or less. That there is a piece of evidence in this case that is sitting in a government evidence locker and the whole case is contained in this piece of evidence. Oh my gosh. Uh, And if you listen through the This is like the jinx. Oh my God. Yeah. There's this one piece of evidence and this is, if there's one thing we're really contributing to this, the whole history of the literature on this case, it's this. There's this one piece of evidence and it has not been tested. Now, just to give you a sense that this isn't just my imaginings, I- came across a 2018 Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals decision in which the judge, in a footnote, claimed that this piece of evidence had been tested and that the result was such and such, and I'm not going to give it away. And when I saw that, I thought, there's the case. But I couldn't find this document. I could not find any record of this test having been conducted. So I reached out to the U.S. attorneys in North Carolina, fully expecting that they were going to ignore me, but they didn't. They called me and we talked about this piece of evidence and they put a team on the project of finding the test so that they could produce the results that this judge had referred to in this appeals court decision. They called me the next week and said, this test doesn't exist. The judge was wrong. This is like a rumor that this test, this test had been done. It has not been done. So that piece of evidence is sitting in a government evidence locker. And if this test is done and it comes out a certain way, which I believe I know what way that will be, the case is solved just putting that out there that is a the, tease. oh my gosh
2: yeah well <laughs> that was, is a proper one tease. of the reasons
0: <laughs> one of the reasons why this we got this podcast out in January over the past couple of months it probably would have been delayed further but i became really paranoid that someone was going to figure this out and scoop me so i was i just said forget it we got to get this out there I, if nothing else we need credit for this That's incredible, man.
2: I mean, I can't wait to listen to that episode, the bonus episodes. I'm almost completely caught up. I mean, I'm intrigued by this case. I've been intrigued by this. Um, Besides just through the looking glass, you know, you are in the band The Sound of Animals Fighting. You're going out on tour with our friend Rich Balling. We just released an episode. Mm -hmm. You were in a very well-known band, The Autumns. You've got a lot going on, man. So just also for our listeners, because I'm a, if you don't mind, uh, I guess I'm a multi-hyphenate, multitasking person. Like Matthew, how do you do it? Like, how, how do what do you do? do, you do? <laughs> like, what tell us, tell us what your secret is, so give, give our audience a tidbit of, like, look, this gentleman has a day job. He's a very important person, but he's doing all these other things. Like, what's your secret,
0: man? Please, man, I don't know. You're making me sound cooler than I actually am. I don't know. I You know what? As I'm getting older, and I, I bet. This is I bet you guys are going to have insights to share with me, but I'm definitely becoming increasingly aware of how critical structure is in terms of time management and also in terms of health uh, not that i'm like a picture of health or whatever but i you start to age you start to experience the body not being able to do what it used to do just in terms of energy you know the energy you have in a day particularly once kids are in the picture and so i've tried to get pretty fascistic about scheduling you know so everything gets written down everything gets plugged in i do have this liability that i mentioned to you offline earlier that i I allow myself to schedule things six months out and don't come to grips with what I've done to myself until it's too late. Other than that, it's just scheduling. It's just putting stuff on the calendar. You know, if you want something done, give it to a busy person, kind of thing.
2: I love it. That's a great secret, man. You know, using the Google Calendar, thinking ahead, putting things into counts. That's really good advice, man. I I'm honored you came onto the show. You know, everyone that's oh, always everyone talked me. about you is like, dude, you're gonna you need to get to know this guy. You guys are gonna see eye to eye and. Yeah, man. Thank you. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for putting out this podcast. You know, keep up the awesome work. We really appreciate the shout outs. And I know we'd love to have you on again. I'm sure Gwen agrees with me on that. You, You two are two peas in a pod.
1: I love your podcast. I'm at the beginning, so I haven't gotten all the way through it. But as I was listening to it, I was just like, oh my God, this is really good. And I'm just so grateful that you've come on the show because I'm really excited to tell everybody about your podcast. (laughs) I'm really excited. It's so well done. Thank you so
0: much. I'm really honored that you guys brought me on. This is a great opportunity for me. And I love what you guys are doing. As I mentioned on our podcast, I've I've listened to a bunch of your episodes and I think this is a great format. It's unique and it's really educational. People can really be enriched by listening to you guys. So it's really it's my pleasure and an honor for me to come on. I'd be happy to come on anytime.
1: Good is in the Details is produced by Dr. Gwendolyn Dolsky and Rudy Salo. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts and you're enjoying the show, please scroll down to the bottom and hit that five-star review. And find us on Instagram, Good is in the Details pod. Take a screenshot of your favorite episode and tag us. We're also on Facebook, Good is in the Details, and we're on Twitter, In the Details pod. Okay, until next time, bye.